Right. Good evening, everyone. Um, it is my greatest of pleasures to introduce Professor Sonia Livingstone. Uh, she is Professor of Social Psychology in the Department of Media and Communications here at the LSE. My name is Robin Mansell, and I'm head of the Department of Media and Communications. Um, Sonia is not only the best of all possible colleagues that one could ever wish for, she is also a superbly good scholar. Um, she's the author or editor of 10 books and more than 100 academic articles and chapters, um, media audiences, children and the internet, domestic contexts of media use and media literacy. Her recent books uh, could be a very, very long list, but I will just mention two. She co-edited the Handbook of New Media, which was published by SAGE in 2006, and most recently a book called Public Connection, Media Consumption and the Presumption of Attention, which she co-authored with Nick Kuldry and Tim Markham in 2007. She has recently directed a research project called UK, UK Children Go Online for the ESRC eSociety program, and she has a further ESRC uh, program at the moment on public understanding of risk and regulation, and a big, uh, very, very big um, EU project called EU Kids Go Online, um, which is part of the EC's Safer Internet Plus program. If that wasn't enough, she also does an enormous amount of public outreach and public service, I guess you could call it. She serves on the UK Home Secretary's Task Force for Child Protection on the Internet and the DCSF's Ministerial Task Force for Home Access to Technology for Children, Ofcom's Media Literacy Research Forum, the Board of the Voice of the Listener and Viewer, and until recently, she was the Internet Watch Foundation um, board member. I was going to say chairperson. <laughs> um, she's also currently president of the International Communications Association, which some of you may know that I'm going to make a big step here and say, which is really the largest international media and communications association. So without further ado from me, Sonia, please go ahead. Great. Thank you very much. And thank you, Robin. When I was a child growing up, families had one television with three channels. The phone was in the hallway or on a street corner. Bedrooms were cold and forbidden in the daytime. Uh, living rooms were formal and ruled by stern parents. Books came from the library, and computers existed only in science fiction. Some of you will recognize this. For much of the world, this picture is already privileged. But to many, it's a forgotten history. Today, children in wealthy parts of the world live wholly surrounded by the media of one kind or another. In the UK, three quarters of five to 15-year-olds have the internet at home. The average number of televisions per household is 3.3, mostly with many channels. In their bedrooms, 71% of children have a television, 62% a games console, 54% a mobile phone, 48% a DVD player, 11% the internet. These are not just changes in technology, in the consumption of stuff. They're changes in the patterns and possibilities for communication. Partly, it's mass communication that's transformed, far more commercialized, profitable, market-led than when I was a child, and now on a transnational, more than a national scale. Partly, mass communication itself is being transformed by the growth of interactive, personalized, and social media. Convergence is making it hard to draw distinctions among different media forms as they intersect and hybridize, converging not only texts and technologies, 
but also social practices and habits, including practices of governance and regulation, or perhaps I should say deregulation. For children, this is welcome. The media with them all their time, all the time, on their person, in their pockets, in their ears, embedded or part of the wallpaper in any space they enter, whether public or private. And they're delighted that it's so. They couldn't imagine life without the media, turning on the television or internet the minute they wake up or come home, falling asleep with their iPod or mobile phone by their pillow. For the always-on, constantly connected, digital generation, few experiences go unmediated, whether in the sphere of leisure and education, or in relations with peers, or connection with their neighbourhood and beyond. This mediation is characterised by its very casualness, the way it's taken for granted, even though it's fast becoming the main way children know about distant others, and a key means by which they express and know themselves. And it also absorbs far more money than my pocket money stretched to several decades ago. Well, for children, a media-rich environment has become a necessity. For adult observers, any optimism associated with the changing media is strongly tempered by anxiety, both for us as, adult, as expert observers, social scientists, policy advisors, policy makers, and so on, and as ordinary members of the public. To be sure, the combination of children, media, and change has always proved particularly explosive, catalyzing society's perennial anxieties about childhood, triggering media headlines, public anxieties, moral panics, official inquiries, and so on. Bruno Bettelheim traces moral panics about new media back via Goethe's Sorrow of Young Werther, blamed for a wave of suicides in 18th century Germany, to Plato's ideal state that banned imaginative literature for corrupting the young. Since even the waltz appeared dissolute when first introduced, it's hardly surprising that public concerns accompany the arrival of comics, cinema, television, computer games, internet, and so on. In the academy, such moral panics have been roundly critiqued for scapegoating the media to deflect public attention from the real problems of society and for attempting middle-class control over working-class pleasures thus denying the agency and good sense of the general public. But a critical rejection of both moral panics and the technological determinism that they imply does not permit us to, to conclude that the media play no role in children's lives. In this lecture, I want to consider these changes, both in terms of the changing media and, more fundamentally, in terms of changing childhood, so as to ask what academic social science can offer to the clamour of public debate and policy formulation. Since I have less than an hour, please accept, uh, accept my health warning. I'm going to focus on the UK, though the arguments go wider. I'm going to focus on television and the internet, and I won't here attend to the vital differences between children in terms of age, gender, life circumstances, and so on. And I might as well also say now that there are no simple answers to be had. Some will disagree with me strongly, and some can hardly credit my returning to such a tired and stale debate as that of empirical evidence for or against media effects. So why am I thinking about this now? Because 2007 was an eventful year for children's media in the UK, as I shall outline. But also because managing changes in the media has implications not only for children, though that's important enough, but also implications for society more broadly. Lurking behind many of the discussions around children and the media are some tough questions 
about changing relations between market, state and civil society. And we must talk about these two. It seems that when debates over children's media get polarised and emotive, it's because children have become a stand-in for something else, a means of articulating anxieties about Western capitalism. At heart, these are often debates about tradition, authority or respect for shared values or the balance between individualism and participation. In some circles, questions about children's protection and human dignity are heard as elitist or moralising, or an argument against freedom of expression, and hence a covert move towards censorship. Given worldwide moves towards state control of the internet, of course, one must recognise the force of this position. But where then does that leave children? What media and communication environment may we realistically be able to provide for them? Let me begin with what happened in 2007. Well, on television, by the end of 2006, serious warnings about children's health led Ofcom to restrict advertising for food high in fat, sugar and salt during children's viewing at an estimated, cost, estimated loss of 30 million per year to the commercial broadcasters. Not coincidentally, ITV announced it would no longer meet its quota of eight hours a week of children's programming and it has since ceased commissioning any new content, moving its weekday children's programming from ITV to CITV and broadcasting game shows and light entertainment when children return from school. The only terrestrial channel to retain children's hour is BBC One, itself about to reduce this time slot and having already announced one in five job cuts in the children's department and rumoured to be moving all children's programming to BBC Two. Meanwhile, Channel 4 announced the axing of its school's programmes, focusing instead on the internet. And after a year with a lot of argument, the activities of a Save Kids TV lobby group, several public conferences and many headlines, it seems that market forces dictate a stark choice between fat kids with good telly and thin kids with little good to watch. But the problem lies with the quality rather than the quantity of provision. There are now 25 channels broadcasting to children in this country, and only, but only 1% of what's shown is UK-originated first-run content. The other 99% <coughs> imports and repeats. What about new media and the internet? Well, it was the year of social networking, 2007, of MySpace and Facebook, reshaping not only how young people spend their time and stay in touch, but also a test of self-regulation. Can the industry deal fairly with kids and parents regarding the covert collection of personal data, for example? Can it respond constructively to the huge new scope for bullies and stalkers without governments weighing in or kids turning away? In 2007, the European Commission held a public consultation on safer internet and online technologies for children. The um, German-EU presidency ended its term with a debate over how to support positive provision for children online. In the UK, Gordon Brown set up the Byron Review on Children and New Technology to examine the risks to children's safety and well-being from exposure to potentially harmful or inappropriate material on the internet and in video games. And somewhat redundantly, perhaps, the Department of Culture, Media and Support announced at the very end of the year a select committee inquiry into harmful content on the internet and video games, broadening the focus to include all adults. It looks like the notion that Britain won't regulate the internet is fast fading, and the struggle is on between advocates of state regulation and self-regulation. Everyone's favourite solution, media literacy, was suddenly a phrase on everyone's lips, including in the Audiovisual Media Services Directive approved in Europe in November 
perhaps influenced by its formal inclusion in the UK's 2003 Communications Act. So there's another serious balance to be struck. How far can we enable media-savvy kids to cope with online porn, grooming and race hate when they encounter it? Or should we restrict their opportunities in order to spare them the risks? Behind many of these events lies a call for evidence. Social scientists are reviewing the evidence base, advising inquiries and, of course, arguing with each other. Within the academy, we're witnessing some ironies. Social scientists who've long argued for the risks of certain kinds of television content found themselves hunting down evidence that good television really benefits children. Critical scholars who've long attacked the complacent elitism of the BBC found themselves coming to its defence as the spectre of top slicing the licence fee approaches. And faced with some truly grim content to be found online, from beheadings and rape to pro-suicide sites and child abuse networks, even the most libertarian confessed to private concerns about media content. Some of the issues at stake are as much political and moral as scientific. And so, of course, academics don't speak with a unified voice. It would be scary if we did, but nonetheless it can be ineffective in policy terms when we don't. Moreover, despite half a century of social science, there are gaps in the evidence base. It's simply unethical to test the consequences of exposing children to potential media harms. Few, it seems, have thought to examine whether home-produced content is particularly beneficial for children. It's expensive to overcome the limitations of laboratory experiments by conducting naturalistic studies in real-world circumstances, and it's very expensive to measure effects longitudinally. Further, though evidence-based decisions sound good, in practice it's not a level playing field. The very, size, very sizable and flexible resources of the industry and even the regulator outmaneuver those of the academy, and they dwarf those of civil society groups. So there are no simple conclusions regarding either potential media harms or benefits, except for the frustrating but accurate statement of contextual contingency. It depends. But since I have the floor, here's a brief take on what I think the research shows. For television, several decades of research have examined the effects of exposure to content, violence mainly, but also stereotyping, advertising, and so on. Many studies show that viewing violent television content may affect children's attitudes and behavior, at least in the short term, but the effects are generally modest in size. Television viewing is also associated with stereotype beliefs about those different from ourselves, with unhealthy expectations regarding body image, with fearfulness regarding crime, and as Hilda Himmelweit found, when, first television, when television first arrived in Britain, children became more middle class in their aspirations and girls conformed more to gender roles when they first got a television. On the plus side, research is also clear that television provides children with many pleasures, as well as it provides a talking point among peers, a way of discussing tricky issues with parents, it offers a safe opportunity to test boundaries, explore emotions, it offers a child-centered understanding of world events, an opportunity for them to exercise imagination, become absorbed in narrative, appreciate new aesthetic forms, and stimulate creativity and play. The internet contrasts with television in many ways, of course. One is that the modest effects for television are found in the context of a heavily regulated environment, and one in which, one in which parents have played an active mediating role. 
The internet, by contrast, intensifies the media experience, including the very best and worst of society, and it disintermediates parents. Not only are children often significantly more expert online than their parents, but the internet also offers children more subject positions, not just recipient of mass-produced content, but also player, searcher, communicator, content creator, victim, and I'm afraid, perpetrator. I think this is my only bit of data. Um, a recent Eurobarometer survey found that 18% of European parents believe that their child under 18 has seen illegal or harmful content on the internet. This varies a lot across countries, as you can see. Paradoxically, being associated both with countries that are new to the internet and those which are more experienced with the internet. Our EU Kids Online project has reviewed over 300 research projects in 21 countries, finding very approximately that among online teenagers, 20 to 30% have seen violent, gruesome or hate sites, 20% have experienced online bullying or hostility, 1 in 10 have sent such messages, 30 to 40% have seen online pornography, and between 1 in 10 and 4 in 10 have gone to a meeting with someone they met online, and similar proportions have been sexually harassed online. In America, a major survey in 2006 found that more than 10, more, found that more 10 to 17 year olds had seen sexual material online than five years ago. And an online Dutch survey found that around, one in ha around half of online teenagers had been asked to undress on webcam. Focusing on a different set of concerns, a recent study by the NCC and Childnet International showed that many of the websites visited by children contain commercial messages which children struggle to identify, especially advert games and product placement. And another NCC study adds that the more time children spend with television and computer games, the more materialistic their attitudes. Indeed, 34% of 9 to 13-year-olds said they'd rather spend time buying things than doing almost anything else. And 46% said the only kind of job I want when I grow up is one that gets me lots of money. Thus far, I have to say, most research about the internet has examined children's activities rather than actual harms, though many clinicians, police and child welfare specialists now claim that the internet is implicated in and exacerbates the problems they see. This seems plausible, for many social activities are, for better or for worse, eased, speeded up, spread further, made anonymous, longer lasting when mediated by the internet. But it must be acknowledged that we have little strong evidence as yet that using the internet is resulting in more childhood unhappiness, disturbance or danger, though nor have we much shown that it aids children's learning, creativity or participation notwithstanding the persuasive claims of educationalists, politicians, and indeed the industry. Since society is happy to act on these latter claims, an equivalent positive evidence should not, in fairness, prevent it acting on the former. When considering the problems faced by children's television broadcasters, some have been tempted to conclude that these no longer matter, that children have turned to the internet instead. I don't think they have. And you'll see by now, I think this would be a mistaken argument. To be sure, children often describe television as boring, and they embrace the internet with an enthusiasm that fully appreciates what an astonishing resource it is. It's transforming their opportunities for learning, for peer culture, creative expression, civic connection, and more. But 
Every child still wants and most get a television in their bedroom. They still switch it on as the first thing they do when they come home from school. The latest celebrity reality show or teen soap opera is what they talk about with their friends, and even their favorite websites are television-related. Significantly, they still spend more time with television than with any other medium, and, interestingly, neither more nor less than they did when television was first introduced into Britain 50 years ago. The internet, on the other hand, remains socially divided in terms of accessibility and use, making television look like an instrument of equality. And much that's of value online is hard to find, even for this so-called internet generation. What's online is highly commercialized, addressing children far more often as consumers than as citizens. And, as I've suggested, it introduces as many risks and problems as it promises solutions. In short, children live in a multimedia environment, and this is unlikely to change. New media, we know, rarely replace older media, though they do remediate them altering but not usurping their place in our lives. So I suggest in media policy circles we should continue to press for high-quality children's broadcasting that encompasses a diversity of genres and represents a breadth of cultures, including children's own. In the academy, the very complexity of children's multimedia world suggests it's time to stop the search for simple and direct causal effects of particular media and instead to turn the question around and ask about the role the media play within the complex array of factors that combine to explain particular social problems. Consider the research on obesity. Following findings from the Royal College of Physicians, among others, that obesity has doubled among two to four-year-olds between 1989 and 98, and trebled among six to 13-year-olds between 1990 and 2002, Researchers worldwide are making a concerted effort to identify a range of factors that may explain rising obesity. Lots of factors have been researched. They can be classified in many ways as biological, social, individual, community, societal, and so on. They have all been researched, and they've all been shown to play a role of one kind or another. And of course, importantly, they can be examined in relation to each other, each influences the others in complex ways, and I could have drawn many intersecting arrows. Among these findings is evidence that television exposure is consistently associated with obesity. The correlation is statistically significant, but not large, explaining 5% or less of the variation in children's food choice or weight. Unfortunately, perhaps because those conducting these big representative surveys rarely consult the field of media and communication, they haven't disentangled three obvious explanations. Is television viewing linked to obesity because it involves junk food advertising, or because kids sit on the sofa and snack, or because it displaces getting some exercise? We don't know. But this approach puts media exposure in context. It's part of the story, but not the whole story. It's as implausible to leave it out as it is to give it pride of place. But my concern here is broader than just obesity. What would this slide look like if redrawn for aggression or violence, or for materialist values, or for girls' body image? In fact, the US Surgeon General has reported risk factors for aggressive behavior in children in relation to video games, noting that their, their aggressive, aggressive behavior in, afford, in order of effect size includes a range of factors, including being in a gang, playing violent video games, 
their psychological condition, their relations with their parents, being boys, having experienced physical violence, exposure to media violence, antisocial parents, low IQ, living in a broken home, poverty, risk-taking, abusive parents, and substance abuse. They're all part of the picture. Okay, the social scientists will want to examine these findings closely, but my point is that this seems to me a better direction because if we put media influences in context, we can move beyond the mythic hypodermic needle of media influence. And drawing this map for other social ills, the obesity map, not the unpleasant game, um, would force us to define just what those social ills are that we're worried for, clarifying just who is worried about which aspect of childhood. For example, what is at stake when we protect children from pornography? Is it their present innocence or their future sexual development? Is it whether they'll become abusers or victims? How serious are we about childhood aggression? Do we really think it has increased over time? Or is the concern more with identifying who is especially vulnerable to influence? So this approach would make us identify the range of relevant and intersecting factors at work so as to weigh their relevant contrib relative contribution and permit a balanced judgment of the media's role depending on children's particular life circumstances. As soon as we look more broadly at children's lives, another picture comes into focus. Another set of changes between the lives of children today and that, those of many of us when we were young. When I was a child, my friends left school at 15 or 16 and began earning. Few went to university. Now nearly all stay in school till 18, nearly half go to university, and they're still living at home through their 20s. Every parent I've ever interviewed has told me 40 years ago they packed their cheese sandwiches and headed for the local wasteland to play all day and their parents didn't know where they were. Today, the Children's Society reports that 43% of adults say children should not be allowed out with friends until they're 14. In 1971, 80% of 7 to 8 year olds walked to school on their own. By 1990, this had dropped to 9%. As Stephanie Coons has put it, over the past century, childhood has been prolonged if it's measured by dependence on parents and segregation from adult activities, especially valued activities. And this dependence is in a state of tension with young people's growing autonomy in the realms of leisure, consumption, appearance and identity. Sociologists have, of course, been mapping out these changes in the family over the past half century, including progressive urbanisation, the persistence of social inequality, the emergence of an underclass, growing gender equality, cultural diversification in terms of ethnicity, religion, sexuality, the decline in political participation, altogether contributing to what Ulrich Beck has called the risk society and what Anthony Giddens has called the post-traditional or democratic family, along with, what Mark, along with Mark Abraham's discovery, as it were, in the 1950s of teenagers. So while children exercise newfound rights, parents agonise over newfound anxieties. And much of this is played out through and around the media. As outside becomes risky, children are kept at home. Faced with anxieties about streets, parks, and even the swimming pool, home seems safer. To occupy them, we fill our homes with media. To give them and us some privacy, we equip their bedrooms. To then keep them in touch with their friends, we give them mobiles and internet access. If we're worried, guilty, in need of a celebration, lacking in resources, rushed for time, or flush with cash, the media in one way or another 
are what we turn to. So for most parents, the media are less the problem than the solution. Bedroom culture, online culture, mediated relationships, these have all been shaped significantly by society's history of decisions regarding the rest of children's lives, decisions that have often downplayed children's rights to participate fully in their communities. We invest in roads and cars rather than cycle paths. We build multiplex cinemas on children's playing grounds and so on. Nor can this be easily reversed, for the media are now bound up inextricably with all the other changes shaping children's lives. The rise of consumer society, the positioning of children as a market, the domestication of leisure, the transformation of the home into an expression of identity and achievement, the media are, in all of these ways, indispensable. This is not to say, however, that parents' perception of the real problems facing their children is entirely accurate. The Risk Commission reported last year that, for every, that each year for every million children in the UK, very few are injured in a playground or are murdered by a stranger or abducted by a stranger. Um, I won't read out the statistics, but they surely suggest that we should worry more about street crime, parental abuse, not stranger abuse, and the car than we should about paedophiles and play in public parks. It does seem fair to worry about gambling, which is somehow linked to the internet, research suggests, and about obesity, which, as I've said, is correlated with television viewing. Moreover, street crime and the risk posed by the car are common reasons why parents keep their children at home, safe with the media, rather than at risk outdoors. And, of course, it's the media that's panicked them about paedophiles on the internet. The Risk Commission reported these as an attempt to try to shift the discourse away from wrapping children in cotton wool and keeping them safe, and instead to recognise that children need to learn to cope with some degree of risk to become resilient. Anyway, teenagers will always take risks and push adult-imposed boundaries. And as my UK Children Go Online project revealed clearly, online as offline, the opportunities and the risks go hand in hand. Providing opportunities brings risks with it, and you can't easily reduce the risks without reducing the opportunities. I haven't got a solution to the problems besetting childhood, but I have got some points to bring out about the media. First, when mapping the multiple and intersecting influences on children and childhood, family, school, community, peers, culture, religion, media, the media are, in one key respect, the odd one out. They are, setting aside only public service television, almost entirely commercial. Consequently, they've never been central to the public policy agenda, at least not like schools, families and communities. Sentences beginning, the media should, have nowhere to go. And this, of course, is because the independence of state and media is vital to democracy. I don't question that. But I see this serving the interests of the market more than the interests of children, and children are citizens too. So consider what the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Child has to say about the media. First, it defines as a child anyone under 18, not the broadcasters 15 or increasingly 12, as if teenagers have no media rights at all. It asserts children's rights to freedom of expression through any medium of their choice. 
to mass media that disseminate information and material of social and cultural benefit to them, with particular regard to the linguistic needs of minority groups, and to protection from material injurious to their well-being. As Ivor Frones and Tron Varga have emphasised, the Convention is concerned not only with rights to protection, speech and welfare, but also a right to unfold and develop capacities. Crucially, they add, while socialisation is anticipatory, the visions of the future exist as values in the present. And so we must ask, therefore, what values our media offer. Hence my suggestion that wherever possible we should, and I note that I can say we should, um, argue strongly for good media, quality media, media in the interests of children. And I say this knowing that we, as academics, broadcasters, journalists, parents, have not managed the defined quality and that attempts to do so sound elitist. But the failings of family or education don't, except under extreme circumstances, lead us to suggest bringing up children without parents or schools. Instead, we seek to support parents and to improve schools. And so too, we might think how, better to, how to support better television, better online content, as argued, for example, by the internationally endorsed but little enacted Children's Television Charter, or more recently, by the Council of Europe's call last November for, quote, measures to promote the public service value of the internet. Second, can we move beyond the simplistic opposition between child protection and freedom of expression? Think back again. Many boys and some girls always had top-shelf pornography under the bed. But online, the top-shelf material is a click or two from the next step, material that was really hard to find when I was young and that many of us didn't know existed. I was going to show you the one click, but I confess that what children are able to see any day with one simple click, I hesitated to show you today and was even advised that it may not be legal to do so. Hence my the paradox. Slide deleted. Filtered for you, but not children. Similarly, when I was young, an anorexic te teenager was probably as unhappy as today. But a supportive network of other anorexics swapping tips on how to throw up or how to self-harm was much harder to come by. So I'm trying to flag up the conditions of accessibility, not that we should simply control this or ban that, as a letter in the Financial Times commented dismissively this week. Think of it in terms of town planning. So, not only do we try to provide children with sex education before they're old enough to evade the regulatory controls of the television watershed or the cinema's age restrictions, but we also agree not to position sex shops next to schools. Similarly, not only do we teach children about stranger danger and seek to control the movements of sex offenders, but we also take care over the positioning of children's playgrounds and we've accepted rules about not using cameras in swimming pools and so on. Indeed, in the physical world, we govern the use of public space in a whole host of ways that relies neither 100% on successful teaching of good behaviour to children and parents, nor on censorship of adult freedoms. Significantly, town planning is not simply a matter of commercial self-regulation. Rather, it works, if it does work, um, ideally at least, through publicly accountable, transparent, independent bodies with democratic structures, appeal processes and clear remits. There are some emerging examples in the online world too. 
For example, the UK mobile industry has adopted an opt-in rather than an opt-out system for accessing adult content. Other examples include regulations collecting the collection of personal data from children, care regarding defaults on privacy settings, provision of moderation services, warning pages before pay for pornography, child-friendly advice and information on sites where this may be needed, report abuse buttons in chat rooms, and so forth. And the Home Secretary's Task Force on Child Protection on the Internet is showing the way here, most recently in, ter in terms of social networking. Third, let's be positive but not naive about media literacy. This is the Home Office's um, advert to children to make them aware of stranger danger. Kirsten Drotner observes that historically, the introduction of each latest technology follows a sociological progression from pessimistic elitism, in which the establishment seeks to control top-down the media enjoyed by the mass public, towards an optimistic pluralism that affirms both the public's general good sense and the legitimacy of diversity within it. You might ask, how can one question efforts to empower the public, to raise critical awareness of both media contents and media institutions, and to encourage diverse public participation? Yet many scholars are rightly suspicious that the underlying goal of the new attention to media literacy is that of supporting economic competition by increasing consumer knowledge and awareness in order to legitimate the reduction of top-down regulatory intervention. In other words, it's part of the broader shift from direct control by government to governance through action at a distance, characteristic of neoliberal market economies. I'm particularly concerned about any implication that relying on media literacy as the backstop strategy can work, that precisely when other strategies fail, media literacy can save the day. In the present media environment, children will encounter content, contact, conduct and commercialism for which they are unprepared. Education takes time and it can only be introduced at the right time. You cannot teach a child below seven or eight that advertising seeks to persuade them for commercial profit. And at what age do we want to prepare our daughters for the image one click away, as I found yesterday, of a teenager being raped by a burglar? Moreover, in practice, like all forms of knowledge, media literacy is uneven in its implementation, unequal in its adoption by those of different social status, it's inconsistently applied as a guide to behaviour, it's under-resourced in its delivery, and surprising to many, it is unproven in its effectiveness. And exactly the same, unfortunately, applies to any strategy of filtering, monitoring or social regulation that relies on parenting. The response of public policymakers is critical, but so too are the less visible activities of content providers, designers, innovators, educators, and the many others who, by shaping the new media environment, set the context within which new media literacies can develop. Much also depends on how we define the media literacy agenda. On the one hand, the greater the, greater the social, economic, cultural, and political ambitions we have for the information society, and especially for the so-called internet generation, the greater the demands on media literacy. Hence the value of ambitious definitions of media literacy in the service of an empowered public. On the other hand, the more minimal the demands on media literacy, especially as regards child protection, the more readily they can be met, 
thus legitimating a neoliberal deregulatory policy for the media and communication sector nationally and internationally. Ironically, therefore, those of us who wish to support pub positive public policies, institutions and values, including those that may empower children and young people as active citizens, find themselves emphasising the failure to meet ambitious expectations regarding public levels of media literacy, rather than, as, long as, as has long been the critical tradition in media studies, celebrating the active media-savvy audience in the face of dominant media institutions. Actually, this is an easy case to make. On most, simple on most simple measures being currently used from can you fix a problem with your computer or install a filter or do you know who to complain to or can you identify online sponsorship or have you contributed to a message board or blog, the answer to those questions for both adults and children is generally below 20%. So let's support media literacy for sure but as part of a multi-stakeholder strategy that places demands on industry and government as well as individuals not just so that they understand the media better, but more importantly, as a key means of enabling them to participate wisely, creatively and fully in the world that they find themselves in. And finally, to those for whom deregulation is the best way forward and who, unwilling simply to dismiss worried parents and take a strong libertarian position, find themselves arguing for the highly media literate child and the parent as the backstop authority, an argument that Rupert Murdoch would not be unhappy with. I suggest that Nick Rose's argument applies. Following Foucault, he argues that we can only be free of the state by action at a distance, what he called governing the soul, i.e. requiring that the burden of regulation is met by parents and children. Escaping regulation altogether is not an option. Moreover, this position advances what Ulrich Beck has critiqued as the individualization or the stratification of risk, which is what it will be since parents are unequally resourced and children are unevenly media literate. Since many of the ills of childhood, from aggressive behavior to obesity, from early sexualization to mental health problems, are already socially stratified and and correlated with not only media use but also the limited resources with which to cope, this is hardly a good or fair solution for most children. In conclusion, now that we live in a ubiquitous and complex media and communication environment, we must recognize that this environment shapes our identities, our culture and learning, our approach to others, and thus the conditions for our participation in society. No one can live outside it, no child wants to. I'm not arguing that children should spend more or less time with the media, but rather that however they engage with the media, it should benefit them. And as society imposes ever more restrictions on what children are free to do outside their front door, what we provide for them at home becomes ever more crucial. Thank you. Thank you, Sonia. Do you want to stay there or do you want to come sit here? Um, while you're uh, getting settled, um, I should have said at the outset that I hope you will all come and join us after this in the senior common room in the old building, which is on the fifth floor. There will be a reception. And you can carry on any disagreements that you have <laughs> with Sonia there. But for now, we have um, about almost 40 minutes where we can take questions.
Um, I want to link together I like the argument very much I'm trying to explore ways you could make it even stronger um, and I want to link together two sides of what you said at various points you talked about a media environment at the beginning and the end um, but in the crucial part of the talk where you were defending the importance of taking media seriously uh, by regulators and others by comparing various factors that, for example, influence obesity or any other major social problem. Um, you were talking about TV exposure, a very limited view of media, uh, the media source, as it were, the causal. The other point you talked about, the risk factors and how the risk commission had argued that any number of social risks were now hugely exaggerated in relation to the underlying facts and there's strong arguments to suggest that certain patternings in media messages and what media emphasis actually increase the sense of risk. And I wonder, clearly one can't do this with straightforward statistical analysis, but I'm trying to encourage you to talk about how you might do it in other ways. If we take the case of obesity, one reason why um, people are, children are obese is because they, don't, they aren't running on the streets, and the reason they're not running on the streets is because of the representation of risk across society as a whole by media. So if one starts to link up the various factors which media as an environment influence, one comes to a much higher percentage of influence, which can't, of course, be statistically proven in a totally uh, rigorous way. But in terms of a, an important rhetorical argument to regulators, I think is an argument that needs to be made. So I wonder how you respond to that, whether you could redouble the force of your argument if you slightly less cautiously link together the different parts of it. When I um, advised Ofcom on whether they should um, ban junk food advertising because it was resulting in obesity or not, um, we spent most of the time arguing about how to characterize the 5% of the variants explained and whether this was significant, large, small, modest, whatever. We finally agreed on modest as a word that somehow everyone could sign up to. But modest is, um, in one sense, um, recognizing a significant and all-pervasive phenomenon, but it's, it's, it, it, it's never going to be greater given all the other factors. If we consider all the factors as independent, it's always going to look small. If we argue for the way in which they all intersect, we don't have the kind of evidence that... In, you know, the regulator, let's say, or the industry, or um, the government can kind of put on the scales and say, here is rigorous social science. So, I mean, I could unpack that notion of evidence-based policy and say it's very particular kinds of evidence that is getting counted. It's um, pretty much quantitative. Um, it does require a kind of statistical... You know, con there's a constant push to quantify how much of a problem relative to other things which social scientists for some reason haven't studied. So there is a paradox, um, particularly those of us in media and communication departments are convinced that the media are entirely shaping all aspects of our identities and culture and communication, but it doesn't translate into the kinds of measures that we can, that we can point to. So we could design better studies um, but it's very bad policy advice to say more research is needed. Hang on for another 15 years while we get our act together. Um, 
So, in a way, this is why I, I and a number of others have been trying to move towards the question of children's rights and the question of what should be provided for them, even though shoulds are very difficult to sustain, Other, because in order precisely not to stand on the base of a rather difficult evidence base. David, please, go ahead. David, King, David Kingsley. Um, recently, uh, we've heard Ox, uh, Ox, Ox, with Ofcom, sorry, uh, Ofcom talking a bit more about uh, uh, having more public service uh, media. Now, I, I think this is a very interesting thing, and maybe in it uh, somewhere a heart of a solution on the problems you've raised. As an adult. I can turn to other stations and I can get, a I can choose what I want and I can, my interests, whatever they may be, are being served. As children, they don't really have a choice to turn to something else. And I, I see, I, I, I'm not saying it's a solution, but I can see that uh, for, for parents and indeed for some children themselves, to have a choice which they know is a kind of public service and is not going to be like all the horrid things that you've been talking about may be part of the solution. I just wonder what you would feel. I think um, we've always had a choice in public service television um, because we've had this what is an anomaly in terms of the rest of the world, which is commercial public service broadcasters, ITV and so on. Um, and it's always been valued by parents. So when Ofcom do their surveys, they say parents value uh, UK-originated content, um, content produced especially for children, um, British public service content, as it were. Um, and yet, children haven't, don't anymore constitute a sufficient market to pay for it. So my... While I like the direction of the, your argument, I'm worried about where the money is coming from to provide more public service media. And what I see the broadcasters doing, as it were, with their, as they vote with their feet, is moving from broadcasting to online. And then the online has its benefits, but it has the, the other set of problems that I've been trying to point to. Um, when Ofcom makes the argument about choice, they're not, I don't think they're really making an argument about parents and children having more choice because children have got 25 channels broadcasting to them. They've got huge choice. So it's the question of UK-originated content not all being repeats and particular kinds of, kinds of choice. So children haven't got any choice in watching children's news, for example. Only the BBC produces children's news. As you know well, they've got very little choice um, on the radio, if we think of another... Um, medium. Um, because children's broadcasting gets put in a, a kind of a box called one particular genre, no one says, is there choice within it in terms of drama, news, um, factual, and so on, which is exactly the choice that we as adults would expect because it's, it's that box. Um, so if we said, yes, more public service media um, across more channels, Fantastic. If, the, if it, what it means covertly is taking money away from the BBC by top-slicing the licence fee, which is where I think it's headed, then we are 
I think, on the road to PBS, to American PBS. I mean, once we start weakening the BBC. So I think, again, it's a really tough dilemma whether we accept the argument that quality and choice is guaranteed by competition or whether we say, no, we protect the BBC, which is a fantastic institution in many ways, um, and we sacrifice some of those questions about choice. I don't have the answer to that one, but that's going to be the dilemma of the, of the year ahead. Hmm. Yeah. They are mainly broadcasting, um, yes. Yes, they are. They're, yeah. they're broadcasting American yeah. sitcoms and game shows, yes. Yeah. And cartoons. really interesting findings that Ofcom published recently was looking at the um, mismatch between where child, what children chose to watch and what was provided for them. So 61% of what they can see on their 25 channels is cartoons, but 47% of their viewing is cartoons. Conversely, I can't remember the percentages, but something like, you know, of, of the proportion that is news or factual, they disproportionately view it. Of the proportion that is drama, um, they disproportionately choose it. In other words, they're voting with their feet for the kind of content which is currently being underprovided and under threat. I think, didn't you say that uh, of all the children's content that is classified that way, only 1% of it is UK originated? UK originated first run. First yes. run. I mean, when you think about that, in a country like this, where for adult programming, there is such a, a long history, so far at least, of you know, whatever quality might count as, but um, production in great quantities. And for children, it's fallen that low. I just completely it, shocked it couldn't to get me. any less, I would say. One yeah. percent is hitting the floor. Um, there's a woman over there on the left. Yeah. Well, I'd like to sort of have a bit more discussed because I 
Yes. Um, <laughs> then I'll be brief. Um, yes, I didn't. I, I was trying to be careful not to say anything um, critical of American programming, much of which children love and much of which is great, um, but rather to say plurality and diversity and that only 1% of it is UK originated first run is as low as it can go before we lose it. Um, the question of resilience and sort of long-term effects is something that's just coming onto the agenda. It's now being discussed in relation to children and risk. People are beginning to say, you know, how, how much risk do children need to take in order to learn? And at what point do we challenge their resilience to cope and go too far? Um, and I think that discussion is really only just beginning. We don't have long-term studies, except, you know, those very simple surveys like... Um, when I grow up, I want a job that has lots of money, um, shows a steady increase. Children used to say, when I grow up, I want an interesting job. So you could sort of somehow say, well, you know, after 20, 30, 40 years of relentless commercialism, um, we have begun to change the kinds of values and aspirations children have. Um, but the education message, well, you, 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 you precisely capture my doubt. How could, I, how could I argue against education? How could I argue against aspirations and children becoming more media literate? Of course, I don't. And, of course, aspirations are crucial. Um, it's when I hear those arguments being used because the other things have failed, because we want to deregulate the, um, the industry, we need media literacy. Because um, certain kinds of Managing the international um, internet environment for a British child is beyond the control of the British government, then we need media literacy. At the point at which other kinds of solutions fail, we point to the one that we have to say is the most inequitable, the one that falls most unequally on the population. And even though, of course, better education, yes, I um, would vote for education, 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 um, we are not doing a great job. Education. We have 10% of kids who are not only not media literate, they're not literate in any sense in this country. So I think we just have to be cautious about positioning education as a solution to a whole set of problems that could be addressed in a more diverse set of ways. And as I, as I my, my example, um, my nasty example about um, the teenager being raped by his burglar, I mean, I think there are points at which we want to say it is not a matter of when do you prepare a young child for that kind of image, but you don't try to, to prepare a young child for that kind of image. A teenager, yes, but at a certain point, other measures are required. I tried not to call them controls. Um, I have a question for you. Uh, I was really taken by uh, the point at which you were describing the way in which we uh, don't bite, bat an eyelash when it comes to governing public spaces in the offline world. So, for example, you mentioned parks and there are boundaries where we permit adults to go and where we don't. And in play areas, we're very careful. And there's huge uh, ferraris over whether people have been um, cleared to be able to teach children to interact with them. And all of those things in the offline world, we and many other places in the world would simply say that is right and proper. And we must do our best. Why? Because we want to make children safe, but we also want to maximize their opportunities for learning, etc., etc. And then we leap into the Internet, and all of a sudden, so many people adopt a completely different stance. And somehow, because it's technological, 
um, it must be different. And so the question I have for you is when you followed on and said something about, I think, conditions of access accessibility. Um, I quite like that idea because it's, it's one which has been picked up in terms of talking about other areas of governance like copyright, conditions of accessibility. Um, conditions of accessibility to content of all kinds. Can you talk a little bit more about how one might um, organize that kind of arrangement? I don't mean technologically. I just mean mm. in terms of selling the argument to people that something can and should be done. Well, I think, hmm, no, I, but perhaps I hope that your field of expertise would, uh, would, would, would help me in scoping exactly how we, how we frame that. Um, I started thinking about this um, when uh, in internet safety circles, the notion of um, road safety has become very popular. You teach your child to cross the road, and so you teach them to use the internet safely. The green cross code on offline can have a green cross code online equivalent. And I started thinking, well, that's a nice analogy, and it goes a certain way, but we don't teach our six-year-olds to cross a motorway, and we don't put a motorway in front of their house, and we do have rules, in fact, about cars and MOTs and road tax, and um, this is where I went. Finally, I got to the notion of the town planning. Um, and those are regarded as regulation. They're annoying, they're red tape, they're nanny state in some circles. But they're not forbid, they're not banning. They don't forbid adults to do certain things except th things that we really agree on, like um, driving drunk without road tax or whatever, or without insurance. So we have accepted a whole set of ways that we don't think about in terms of bans and controls. We think about in terms of positive management of public space in which we all somehow manage to achieve our rights according to our capacities and our vulnerabilities. Um, how we characterise that online when we haven't got planning departments and local government bodies and so forth is, I, I think that's why it's, it's, it's very hard to articulate it. The solution at the moment that's emerging is clearly that of self-regulation. Self-regulation which many um, uh, parts of the industry, especially in this country, I do think this country is leading the way, um, is very, uh, the way. The internet industry in this country is clearly very concerned to demonstrate self-regulation in order to provide a set of protections for children. But it's also um, a point at which they compete by brand. So a child-friendly known internet service provider doesn't necessarily um, share all of its strategies, its research, its approach, because that's its brand um, uh, USP, as it were. Um, and secondly, uh, the consumer, the parent or child, is asked to trust that brand, is asked to trust that certain kinds of protections have been taken in place. And at that point, I am at one with the, um, the uh, civil liberties groups who say, in, embedded in these filters, which are proprietary, which are not... Um, public, we cannot see what else is being filtered out. Yes, they take out the pornography, they also take out the other stuff. The, even our UK government has been quite keen that once you have provisions in place for pornography, you could do something about terrorism as well. Let's put it in there. We have the structures in place. So that's why um, in relation to um, the town planning notion, it seemed, well, these are also public bodies they regulate the public space in an accountable way. Of course, everyone hates their local town planning. I mean, they are laughable, kind of, you know, extreme 
examples of horrible local government and horrible red tape. Um, but people do know what the remit is. They can go and see what's being considered. They can see what decisions have been made. This is not, um, I suggest, by and large, happening on the internet. Um, and it could. So I guess that's to suggest um, a new public body. <laughs> Institution building. I like that. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, kind of going on your point with the rights of the child, how it's under 18, and then regulators look at 12, but even maybe going the opposite direction where you were, some of your statistics were with age 20, up to age 25, um, which would include uh, universities like the LSC. And it almost seems, uh, you know, I, maybe just trying to get a response from you as opposed to a question, but things like uh, WebCT and Moodle and uh, the abandoning course packs and adequate uh, Libraries, you know, we complain about that, but then we're put, also putting money towards the IT side, and it, it almost seems like, you know, we're, we're pushing, re, do your readings online, uh, go to the internet to do your research, but we are abandoning the social interaction that having a, a public space like the library has. You know, you go in the library and it's everybody on the bottom floor, just going at their, uh, you know, online trying to check Facebook, their, their email. And it's, it's abandoning that social aspect that, uh, you know, a university setting goes for. So, you know, do you, do you see those, the risk of maybe we're focusing on the children, uh, but it's going on into the later el elements of life where, you know, do you see that hmm. being an effect? You know, <laughs> I know it's kind of... Um. I, I don't know that I see um, university students struggling to uh, interact socially. Um, I think I see a lot of social interaction and work, collaborative working going on offline as well as um, on Facebook and so on. Um, and I guess most of the research doesn't say, uh, though people initially thought it, that the more time you spend online using your learning and networking resources online, the less time you would have for face-to-face -face social interaction. Now, whenever you see those kind of time statistics, you wonder where all the extra time has come from. Um, and time studies don't show less time for social interaction. So somehow, I think the conclusion is that we're all sleeping a lot less than we used to. Um, that's certainly the conclusion in relation to children. I mean, I was, you're, you're, you're right, I was fuzzy about what I meant by child. Um, and there are, partly I just, there were limited statistics for different ages, but there is a struggle going on about adolescence. And um, public service broadcasting is increasingly just focusing on, or even public service media online, are increasingly just focusing on under 12s. As if after 12, the child can think and act and is exactly like um, an adult, and no provision is needed, partly because they're very hard traditionally to provide for. Um, and so there's a kind of abdication of what teenagers need going on, which I was trying to draw attention to. And it's significant that the UN Convention specifies 18. Um, and given that we have sociological pressures to move us towards keeping people young longer, this is becoming a kind of a, an extended gap um, that we're not addressing. Um, yes, there, and then at the back. We'll take these two and then. Is the one over there too? Um, hello, good evening. Anne Weinhardt from Germany. Um, just maybe just in response to what um, you just said with um, you know the age range of going of a kid going up to 18, 
Um, I used to work in the toy manufacturing industry in Germany. In the which factory? In the toy, toy uh -huh. manufacturing okay. industry. And um, did lots of media planning for um, children target groups. And um, what um, the, the TV channel and also the media um, planning agencies have um, consecutively told us is that um, children start watching adult programs more and more like at a younger age. So they start switching off all of the children's channels and, and wandering off to the, to the adult, adult channels. That, that's why um, kids' program actually de decreases. And um, just maybe another question. Um, what I found um, intriguing when I worked with um, one of the biggest um, children's channels in Germany was that they um, kind of looked at children as, as just another target group. They weren't really ethical or moral in any way as, as to approach the kids. Um, and um, I was wondering whether there would be any chance to um, have like a closer dialogue between the official institutions and the industry, because I can't, couldn't see that happening in Germany. You had the officials and um, the universities on the one side arguing that you know we should have better children's programming and we should have this and that, but the industry just worked on as, as they wanted to. Well, I, you, you can't say should to an industry. You can say it to academics, and academics are now required with, with every bit of government funding they get to communicate to the industry. The industry, unfortunately, is not required to communicate back with us, so there is a, a kind of a, um, a, a, a challenge for us there. Um, I think, of course, broadcasters have always said um, when children get to whatever it is, 12, 13, or maybe even 7 and 8, they start watching adult programs, so we don't need to provide for them. But there is um, a chicken and an egg problem there. We have traditionally provided for um, children, these words become uncomfortable, for children and young people up to the age of 15. They turn away a little bit. We say they're not a sufficiently profitable market. We reduce our provision. They turn away some more. We say, look, they're going to the internet. We don't need to bother with them anymore. Um, that argument's been accepted for adolescents, but it is, um, a, it's, it's an argument, you know, which, which comes first, the withdrawal of provision or the, the, the kids moving away. The two have gone in tandem. Now we see the same argument being made for young children's broadcasting, they too are turning away to the internet. We don't need to provide anything for them on television. And if your measure of what children want relies on ratings, um, is a quantitative industry type measure, then um, as that slides slightly, we lose the purchase on saying this is actually what children need, which is the, why I turn to the, the rights arguments as well, what, what is good for children um, and what they should have a choice of rather than this is how they vote with their feet. So I'm just worried that we rely on the ratings, which is already a step towards the industry, and then we find that the rug is pulled under our feet and no one has a further justification for good provision. Gentlemen, back. The web, etc., etc. Well, um, did I say earlier? It depends. Um, it'll, it'll, it'll be something of both. Um, 
I was once very struck when I went into a, a house to do an interview um, with a family about their use of the media, and there were six people living in that house, and they had, I think, three televisions, and their favourite programme was Neighbours, which happens to be shown twice each day. And they all managed to watch it every day, but never watching it together. So they were precisely using the media to, to separate, but they had something in common. They still came and they talked about it. Um, and somehow the media are doing both of those things. As they become more personalised, as they become more mobile, more individualised, they both separate us, but they still are what um, people talk about. Uh, they still are what children um, uh, discuss with their friends, and a good programme will get them talking the next day. So I think it's the talking rather than the sitting together in the moment of viewing that we probably really value. Um, and if that moment becomes more conveniently disturbed, um, dis dispersed, that isn't necessarily, I mean, that could be a good thing, except that um, parents are not going to have a clue what their kids are using. And if parents are, let's remember, the backstop authority that is supposed to be managing all of this because we're not going to do it at the state level, we have a growing problem. Okay. Um, I think last question over there on the left. You, David. sir. David. Um, some sympathy with that, but I don't know who to put them forward to. 
because the um, Communication Act, which manages our broadcasting environment, provides very few protections for children. Um, the uh, Education Department, the DCSF now, um, has no requirement to provide media literacy within its curriculum. Um, the um, Department of Health, well, has just put a very strong case about restricting advertising of junk food and lost the battle against um, the interests of industry. So I think I mean, there are cases to be made, but there is not the one point at which one can push and say, here is the, um, you know, here is the way in which policy conclusions can be translated into particular kinds of action. And that's why everyone is trying to, as it were, um, identify a range of solutions which together, one might say, adds up to something that will make a change, um, but um, individually sounds like a series of small measures. I mean, it may be, um, and I say this knowing that there are people here listening, that the Byron Review will make some strong recommendations about um, the regulation of children, um, a regulation of the internet for children. Um, but a number of other bodies have not found that that kind of solution can be strongly argued um, and then strongly enacted. We have media literacy in the UK Communication Act, but people aren't very clear what it means and not very much is being done. So I'm, I'm a bit more pessimistic than you are about the policy process, um, but that doesn't mean I don't have the same concerns at heart. Um, I did say that would be the last question, but there's one more hand over there, and I'm going to make you the last question. We're going to finish at 8 o'clock or just before, so last question. Sonia, you um, characterised the sort of the normal regulatory model as better. The normal regulatory model as sort of starting off with the pessimistic elitism, basically the elite trying to decide what this should be received. But my sense is that in our internet, internet world, it's completely the opposite. Um, and actually, the elites have been quite shy of uh, regulation uh, because they realise this is one hell of a tiger to grab on the tail. And I think there are two uh, main features of that. One is the cross border aspect of it, which makes it a threat to actually spot. And I think it's that in the old world, there were very, very few media producers who were quite easy to spot and license Whereas now, we all are media producers because we have access to my space where we such where we are creating content. So it's, it's absolutely, it's a complete order of magnitude different, different problem. And when we talk about self-regulation, it's actually the people as producers that have to get into their mind, I am now in the user, I am now publishing, I am responsible for self-regulating what how I defend. And to a point in those parts of this, those people have you and try and get them to cooperate with rules. But that's a fairly limited uh, a fairly limited possibility that they should be able to shut them down as far as starts sort of way. Um, well, I think we, um, I, I, I agree on the difficulties. I agree that we, um, are, we, we are going to have to, see, there will be 
a change in how people understand the kinds of consequences and responsibilities they have in relation to producing content. But it will be incomplete, that's my point. So saying individuals will have to be responsible when we know that individuals will send bullying messages and harassing messages and uh, all kinds of unpleasant content of which you're very well aware is, is, is speaking to the deaf. And Rupert Murdoch owns MySpace and could also um, be asked to um, bear certain responsibilities, as in fact he is. And they are now providing more age controls on what kinds of, and, and changing the defaults on privacy settings and so on. So there is an argument to be had, and in small ways it's being won, but the technology will move on and the kids will move on and the fight will carry on. But just to say, as it were, because it's such a difficult problem, we have got to change individual attitudes and behaviour. Um, to any psychologist is um, a doomed uh, enterprise. And that's why I'm trying to say it's a broader problem. Right. Well, you have raised an enormous number of issues. I mean, we could, we could sit here all evening and talk about how the rights-based approach would translate internationally, globally, where it could run into some difficulties. Mm -hmm. um, you could have got, given us a comparative um, discussion about all the different values that are inherent in how children should be yep. in different parts of the world. Um, you could have ranted on about commercialization more than you did. Um, <laughs> but there is a real need to resist the endless forces of basically um, denying the notion of a public space, not only for adults but for children. And I think you, people will go away and they'll be thinking hard about what to say and do next. And also, who should give us research funding to support more of <laughs> this kind of research agenda. So thank you. I think that was excellent. Thank you.